You think that atheists yes. throughout history have been more actively oppressed than women? Yes. Hi, I'm Sid. And I'm Orla. And this is The Fate Escape, a podcast where we talk about people who came up from nothing. Orla, who are we talking about this week? That's a great question, Sid. Thank you. And I will tell you. Uh, we are talking about somebody who's still alive. Mmm. Um, today, uh, we're talking about somebody who's still alive. Um, As of when this podcast was recorded. Don't say that. I'm going to feel so bad if they don't know. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Um, her name is Judy Human. Judy Human. Have you heard that name at all before? I've heard of Judy. <laughs> you know of some Judy. Yeah, I know of Judy. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, same sort of... And you know some humans. I don't know any humans. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I do know humans. Oh, God. So I was picturing H-U-G-H-M-A-N, which I'm assuming is how her name is No, spelled. it's spelled um, H-E-U-M-A-N. Sorry, spell that again. H-E-U-H! Fuck off! <laughs> okay. Who is Judy Human? Well, I'll tell you. Mrs. Human. Miss Human. Miss Human. She Ms. is married, um, Ms. but Ms. her husband has a different surname. It is her maiden name. Oh, cool. Um, so, Judy Human is a writer and teacher and disability rights activist. Um, and I chose her because I remembered that it is Disability Pride Month this month. That's a thing. That's a thing. I see. Um, this month is Disability Pride Month. So up until yesterday, I had somebody else planned and almost a script written. Um, but then I remembered it was Disability Pride Month. And I remembered Judy Human, who is someone that I greatly admire. And I decided to switch at the last minute and talk about um, all of the incredible work that Judy Human has done and continues to do. How many Pride Months are there? I don't know. Because I feel like... Okay, so obviously I'm completely behind, you know, the LGBTQ plus community. Thanks, babe! You know, and obviously I'm completely behind, you know, Disabled Pride too. But I don't know how many months there are for Pride. If there's more than two, it starts to get to the point where it's like, well, can these be like a Pride fortnight? Just because it feels like a lot of the year is... The ones that I know of are February is Black History Month. Um, June is LGBT Pride Month. And July is Disability Pride Month. A month is a long time. It's true. A month is a long time. I just, and that's not even like, <laughs> and I, I, I realise I'm sounding awful here, but that's okay because I can cut it if I do. <laughs> but like, I think it's difficult to, to sustain interest in something for that long, no matter what it is. I don't think the point is for the entire month to be about it. I think that the reason that... Um, I'll refer specifically to Disability Pride Month in this specific because I think a lot more people know about LGBT Pride Month. Um, but Disability Pride Month, I think the importance of it being a month is because I think the disabled community are massively underrepresented and in many ways, because of the inaccessibility in the world, very hidden. And so choosing to have it be an entire month and have that month be specifically dedicated to that have it be written have it be so that perhaps companies because we live in late capitalism acknowledge it is really important um and i actually don't think like enough is sort of done to acknowledge it i think a lot of people don't know that this disability no, I'd, I'd never heard of it mm. um, so yeah you're quite right um can i just do a brief, completely unrelated disability pride, but on the subject of months before we get into the main track. Love months, go. Okay, if you add up the numbers of the months with 30 days, uh-huh. you get 30. So 30 days have September, April, June, and November. So that's 9, add 4, add 11, add 6. I love that fact right? so much. That's so satisfying. Right? And I'm particularly fond of this fact because I didn't read that anywhere. I was really bored one day at work and, and just came yeah, across that. Up. Yeah, that I just... so fun. Yeah, uh, no, I love that. So Judy Human. <laughs> Legend, icon, and star. Well, she's only human. 
Sorry, I'd been sat on it for two. I was waiting for a better opportunity, and then I couldn't. Her anymore. biography, which I would absolutely recommend reading, is called "Being Human," and that's oh. just good. So, uh, Judy Human, uh, full name Judith Human, big change there, um, was born to uh, Werner Human, who immigrated from Germany to the USA in 1934, and Ilse Human, who immigrated in 1935. So, daughter of immigrants. Yes, daughter of immigrants. Um, both of her parents left as very young people to flee Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. And she lost both her grandparents and her great-grandparents um, to the Holocaust. And so she is Jewish. She is Jewish, yes. And she's made it very clear in, in her book, in her TED Talk, that the fact that her parents understood discrimination the fact that her parents understood adversity and the fact that they'd been through this horrible loss because of the holocaust was something that had made them so aware of injustice and so deeply against it so deeply pro-equality and so deeply willing to stand up and fight that when it came to the struggles that judy faced later on in her life they were i think probably more prepared and more happy to take on the battles that it took to get her to the places that she went um yeah so do you know by the way again i'm sorry to jump in do you know why it's called the holocaust no neither did i and i asked people and like no one knew it was because i i was just thinking about it you know you chew on things at work i do a lot of like you know things where i'm just thinking about other stuff um and apparently i think it's i can't remember if it's latin or greek but from a word that means to burn which was quite... That's fucking awful. It was one of those things, I was like, oh, I'm, it's such a word that's so accepted, you know, like, but like, I just, I never yeah. even thought about where it came from. And then I was like, I, you know, that, yeah, possibly yeah. that was an intense thing to know. Yeah, I think, yeah. And like I said, it, it makes a lot of sense why her parents coming from that background um, and even separate from losing their parents and grandparents um, to the Holocaust, just being a Jewish person in America at that time was incredibly difficult. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. And so I think that's a really, really important factor in kind of beginning her story because it sets the stage and gives you the context for why fighting and standing up for what she believes in is so entrenched in her blood, you know, is why that became, like, it makes sense why that became such an important part of her life. So in addition to being a household that was fiercely pro-equality, it was also a household that was full of discussion. And at the dinner table, it was just constant, you know, discussion, debate. And um, before, before we go on, was she born disabled? Is it like a no. genetic or is it an accident? Or... I'm getting to that. Okay, okay. I just thought it was important. No, that absolutely. Table discussing. Yeah. Um, the reason I'm telling you all this is just because I think it... Um, her personality and kind of like who she is I think even more than the past couple of people we've talked about who she is and her personality and her drive are one of the most important things in this story so setting the scene for maybe why that is is really important I just also like to okay and I just want to say to set the ground to this podcast I am woefully ignorant of so many things and you know the plights of disabled people in general is one of them so I'm going to ask a lot of questions that just Absolutely. pop into my head. One then, if you're in a wheelchair and you have dinner at the table, so I'm thinking of conversations at the dinner table, do you stay in your wheelchair? Or yes. do you go into a chair? You stay in your wheelchair. Um, just to say, um, again, for a little bit of context about kind of where we're at coming into this, um, I'm not physically disabled. Uh, on employment forms, I put myself down as disabled because I have ADHD and it means they have to interview me um is that a thing yeah um (laughs) but um i'm not physically disabled but i worked as a carer for somebody with physical disabilities erica i adore you you're definitely not listening you find this deeply boring but hi um and so i know quite a bit about accessibility and disability in the UK and I've done quite a lot of research into accessibility and stuff but I'm by no means an expert and I'm not physically disabled myself. And I know nothing um, but I think it's very important not to be afraid of ignorance and to be willing to ask questions because ignorance breeds fear. Absolutely. 
So, I have a quote from uh, Judy herself, from her book, um, about her household. Um, so she said, when my cousin got engaged, he told his fiance, when you come to the house of my uncle, don't ask questions. Because if you ask a question and you don't know the answer, he will send you the encyclopedia and have you write a report. Um, she was joking. Okay, yeah, I know, but like, but it's that, that, I, yeah, I, I get that that wasn't, but even so, that's like a. But I, yeah, I get the impression her uncle, well, her father was intense, rather. Yeah, um, but in a really good way. It yeah, sounds yeah, like she but... sounds really like grateful and happy about all this. So, um, Judy was born able-bodied, um, but at eighteen months old, she contracted polio, um, and this caused her to be paralysed from the waist down. So, for all intents and purposes, she has been disabled for her lifetime. Yes, for all of the life that she can remember, she has been living as a physically disabled person. Um, and she was in an iron lung for three months, and she was in and out of hospital for three years. Um, I've just got a little bit of information on polio, so I think we hear a lot about it as this, like, really, really big thing, um, because it was, obviously, it's affected so many lives, um, but it's actually only in about 0.5% of cases, um, that it causes paralysis. It moves from the gut to the central nervous system, and that can cause muscle weakness many people actually fully recover from polio um but in those who get this muscle weakness about two two to five percent of children die and about 15 to 30 percent of adults die um and the reason i put all of this in is to say there's a polio vaccine and there are vaccine boosters and i love vaccines and if i have an opportunity to talk about vaccines i will because get vaccinated you dumb fucks Get vaccinated for everything you can be vaccinated for. Get vaccinated. How prevalent is polio? Uh, polio, polio. It no longer is. Okay. Um, because of vaccination, yeah. um, it's one of those things that in Western countries where healthcare is um, more widespread, it's almost completely eradicated. There was quite a large outbreak of a particular strain in. I think Afghanistan, but I would have to check in 2018. Um, I think about like 150 people contracted. I don't really know much about it. What did what did Roosevelt have? Roosevelt pol- polio. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, but yeah. While we're on it, huge shout out to Edward Jenner. Very smart chap, of course. Who? Edward Jenner. Who's that? The person who invented vaccinations. Oh yeah, and top job. Thanks, lad. My great 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 grandfather. Was the person who invented vaccines? Yeah. Bitch! Yeah. That's so, how did I not know that? It's the result of an affair. But still! <laughs> but, you know. How did I not know that? Well, and it was really nice because when I didn't get into Cambridge, by choice, nailed it. <laughs> Maybe. Um, you know, I, I was a little bit upset and my nan just messaged me later that day and she just went, you know, Edward Jenner went to St Andrews, which I didn't know. And, that's you know, so lovely. <laughs> oh, that's so lovely. And now you're so happy. Yeah. Um... Fuck you, Cambridge. Yeah, except, you know, I still really love you because you're Cambridge and you're beautiful, but, you know. No, you're Team Oxford now, come on. No, I still prefer Cambridge to Oxford. Sid! What, they're just better. <laughs> Listen, I've got my beef with Oxford, but you could at least, you know, be on my side. Yeah, I, I just, I'm not going to hold it against Cambridge for a personal grudge. I feel like that's biased and that's not really fair. So, speaking of Judy, <laughs> back, actually, speaking of education, back to Judy. So... Um, she's talked about how, while some of her neighbours, she grew up in Brooklyn, in New York, um, born, born and raised, yeah, really cool, um, were extremely helpful to her family. The fear of contagion was so strong for others, um, that they would literally cross the street to avoid walking past her house. Is polio contagious? It is, so it's kind of similar to typhoid, um, it's, um, particles in infected water or in the air. Um, I think, like, these particles, um, and that's obviously part of why it was so much more But you're left pa- paralysed after you've recovered from polio. That's just a result of what it's done. Yeah, it spreads from your gut to your muscles. Yeah, but my point is it, it causes that damage, and then, like, is it a lasting infection? Has yes. she still got polio when she's older? Is it um, I don't never if... gone and she's still left disabled as a result of that? I don't know if it would be called still having polio, I'm not sure, but it is... 
polio can cause permanent paralysis. Yes, so you're still dealing with yeah. the repercussions. So but like, it might get to a point, for example, where she's no longer contagious at all. Yes, absolutely. she's not carrying the virus. Yeah, you're probably, you're contagious for a couple of weeks, but... Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, she it's is done the damage. paralysed from the waist down for the rest of her life. Yes, okay. Um, so doctors um, actually suggested to her parents that they could move her to an institution to live so that they could go on with their lives without the additional challenges of having to deal with a disability. I think that gives a really great context for the kind of world that she was living in. So she was born in 1947, um, and this is an active suggestion that was made to her parents. She didn't actually find out about this until she was 36 years old. But I think this kind of just gives you a very clear snapshot of what the attitude to disabilities was at the time. It wasn't, oh, okay, this is a thing, let's deal with it, we just need to innovate, adapt, overcome. Um, it was, this is a burden, you, an able-bodied person, shouldn't have to deal with this, here's a way that you can get this out of your life. And that was a doctor that told them that. That's really cool. Um, and she's also talked about how she didn't really realise she was different, being in a wheelchair was all she knew. Um, but it was eight years old when she was uh, going down the street, uh, being wheeled by a friend. They were going to the sweet shop um, and a boy comes up to her and asks her if she's sick. Um, and she says no. Um, and, you know, she's thinking and still thinks like she plays piano. She plays with friends. She went to brownies. Um, but what, what the world thought when they looked at her was she's sick. Um, and I think that I think for a lot of physically disabled people, that's something that actually, I think for a lot of disabled people in general, you know, people with autism and like stimming and stuff, um, the world looks at them and thinks they're sick, not just that they have a slightly different way of existing in the world. Um, so when her mother took her to enrol in primary school, um, elementary school, um, when she was five years old, they were turned away um, because the principal of the school felt they couldn't accommodate a student in a wheelchair. She was told she was a fire hazard. They were told that the Board of Education would instead send a teacher to her house to homeschool her. How many hours a week of tuition do you think that was provided to her? A tiny amount, four. Two and a half. Two and a half hours of tuition a week was provided to her. And this is, again, just like, but this is reinforcing the segregation that would have been existing in people's attitudes anyway. It's, she's exactly. not even allowed to be around other people. And this is something that's going to come up time and time again. I think the reason that disability rights, disability pride month, all of this stuff, are things that within mainstream society we don't necessarily think about or talk about as much as we talk about other minority groups, other discriminated against groups, is because because of the way they've been discriminated against, because of the lack of accessibility in the world, it's forced a lot of disabled people to be hidden and remain hidden because the outside world just isn't accessible to them. And so it makes their fight even more hidden because, you know, to be able to protest in a building, you have to be able to get in it. And if it has steps and you're in a wheelchair or you have impaired leg function, you can't. Um, so two and a half hours a week of tuition um, luckily her mother really had a bad education and augmented this, she learnt Hebrew, um, but she was ultimately able to attend a real school, beginning at the age of nine, but at this point she was exclusively in classes with other students with disabilities, who were aged anywhere up to 21 years old, and she was nine. So it wasn't tailored education basically, no, it was just like it was, the disabled kids in that class. This is the disabled kids class, and you think about this is, you know, she has a physical disability, she has polio, nothing to do with her brain um and that will have been the case for a lot of the people within that class while we're on that just to call off something you said earlier would you call someone with autism disabled um i think a lot of people who have autism self-identify as disabled okay. um it's not for me to you know yeah. say about any specific person but a lot of people with autism with adhd with ptsd would refer to themselves as disabled um it's you know a mental disability not a physical disability but it is a disability see i always struggle with with okay mental disabilities as we're referring to them here because just in concept and i'm going to put ptsd to one side for now because that doesn't really fall in with you know what i'm saying but like autism for example 
I think disability, you, the brain is structured differently. And I get that that makes life much harder in everyday life. And I don't want to undermine that at all. And I don't want to, you know, obviously, you know, they're discriminated against a lot in society. I mean, for the large part, it, it, it mocks them to an extent. Mm. And, like, that is awful. But, like, I don't know, disability, it makes it sound like there's something wrong, even though the brain is structured differently. And it feels like it's a label for how the brain is structured. But does that mean it's structured wrong? Whereas if, if for example, your legs don't work, your legs are not performing the function for which they exist. And if you have PTSD, that is your brain actively not performing within the boundaries with which not it was created, but it, it was, it formed. It's not performing normally. But autism, and I, I, you know, again, I get it doesn't perform normally in the sense that it doesn't perform as the large majority does, but it doesn't um, mean that it's Neurotypical wrong. is the word that you would use for. Neurotypical, thank you. Um, yeah, and I, I just... Okay, so can I can I say a couple of things? Yeah. So, um, the first thing that I would say is I don't think all autistic people would refer to themselves as disabled, um, obviously, but I think a lot do. Um, the second thing I would say is you said structured differently. Well, what is a disabled body if not a body that's structured differently? Well, but this this is my point. So, if your legs don't work, for example, legs have evolved to allow you to, for example, walk. Shout out to legs for evolving. <laughs> yeah, but my point is, uh, they have a very specific function, yes. which is very clear. Can I? Say... I think for the brain, it's it's much harder to say this isn't doing what it's meant to be doing because I, I don't know. Autistic people tend to be more adept, adept, adept. Some autistic people, yeah, um, you know, at certain s- other things, it is it's a different structuring of yes. the brain. But I think. I don't think, I know, that as able-bodied people, particularly, but also disabled people, as children we are taught that disabled and disability are bad words and that they have negative connotations. And that gives disabled people this feeling that they are unworthy, that they're a burden, that just because of the way that they physically do things differently or physically need help with things they're wrong so yes perhaps your legs don't work but our eyes don't work we both wear glasses right um and there are all sorts of different things and one thing that i'm gonna bring up time and time again throughout this is everyone either has a disability at some point in their life or lives to become disabled if they're lucky enough because you think about old people, um, if you're in your 80s, your 90s, you develop disabilities naturally. You think it'd be a lucky thing to live to your 90s? I think it's lucky to not die young, yeah. I don't think... You I, don't think I, it's lucky to not die young? I don't... I, I, I wouldn't be able to cope with being 80 or 90. I just... I honestly think that's beyond me. I just, really? Yeah, I just... I'd more like... Okay, my mind mostly, but, you know, to, to a large extent too, like, my body, it's not the fact that it's young, it's not, oh, I'm young, it's that I know I kind of, I like being able to do things, I like... So you wouldn't be able to cope with being disabled? No, exactly, okay, yeah, like, that idea terrifies me, but even more so is the idea of, of my mind, I, yeah, ironically calling back to earlier, but, like, my mind deteriorating in any way, like, think... the idea of Alzheimer's, that... Absolutely. And I think a lot of people have that. And it is scary. I'm not, you know, what I'm saying here when I'm saying disability isn't a bad word, disabled isn't a yes, bad no, word, no. isn't that being disabled isn't hard. Having a no, no, I get that. It's hard. saying that it, it's not a detriment on them. Yes. And it's harmful to have those words have negative connotations. Am I grateful that I can walk, that I can move my limbs? Yes. Do I think that if I was a quadriplegic, for example, if I was injured in a car accident and I was paralysed from the chest down, my life wouldn't be worth living. I would be less of a person. I would be less worthy. No, I know that I would feel that sometimes because it would be a massive change for me, but absolutely not. Um, It's just different. And I think that we don't realise because disability rights and stuff are so hidden, how much ingrained 
personal prejudice we have against disabilities. Yeah, entirely. Um, and just on that point, I was, I was when I was making the so my autism point earlier, mm. and it was before you you know um sort of just before you brought up the point of like yeah looking at what the connotations of the word. I did one of the things in my mind was like, is it really fair to be calling them disabled when they perhaps might not identify yeah. like that? But if you call them that, that shouldn't be an insult. Exactly. And the fact that my mind jumped to like you know that's putting them down. Yeah. Um, and it's it's very similar to how we have discussions about institutional racism. We're both very white and um, internalised racism, internalised homophobia are aspects of what it is to exist in this society which is structured to oppress these people. And I think that internalised ableism is something that we don't acknowledge enough. Yeah. I mean, we don't acknowledge either of the other two enough either, but, no, but I, 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 it's I, a particularly again, hidden thing. I think thing. these are important things to talk about. So my girl Judy... Um, as I said earlier, um, she was not able to attend school until the age of nine, at which point um, she exclusively was in classes with other dis- disabled students. Um, uh, once they turned 21 and they were no longer able to be in this, they would be sent to a programme called Sheltered Workshops, where they would be given menial work for little or no pay. Um, she was only able to mix with the other children, the non-disabled children, once a week at assembly. Um, so she did this, she did this for about three years, um, until it was time to go to high school. And at the time, none of the high schools in New York City were wheelchair accessible. Um, so this was around 1960. Right. Um, and in 1960-ish, when Judy would have started high school, the population of New York City was about 7.7 million. So, medium. Yeah. People with disabilities make up around 8.5% of the United States population. So, obviously, not all of those people are people in wheelchairs. Yeah. But some of them are. And none of the high schools in New York City, which includes all five boroughs, were wheelchair accessible. So, I had this moment, and I'm not excu- I'm not excusing it. <laughs> um. I feel like I'm not going to come across great in this podcast. But anyway... You're, um, you're learning and you're asking questions. That's the best thing a person can be doing. Well, I try. Um, no, I was just going to say, because I had this moment, I was like, none of them, you think there'd be at least one bungalowish school? And I was like, oh shit, they're in New York. Everything's going to be built up so it can mm, fit. Yes. Like, so I'm not um, saying that that makes sense, but it makes sense in New York more than any other place. To be fair, like looking back, our school was wheelchair accessible in ways as in there was a lift in the new building there were ramps where some there was at least one door to each building that had a ramp but there were a fuck ton of buildings that you couldn't access a lot of the doors even in the buildings that you could get a ramp into were too narrow for a motorized wheelchair to get through you know think of the languages rooms upstairs exactly yeah um so you know there's, you can kind of listen to this story, to Judy's story, and say, oh, but she, you know, it was, it was 1960, or kind of any part of her story, and be like, oh, it was this time, you know, it was back in the day. But a lot of these things, oh, yeah, it's, it's... you can you can recognise them still. Yeah. So her parents decided they weren't going to accept this. They weren't going to make her go back to being homeschooled. So they grouped together with other parents of disabled children and demanded that the Board of Education make some of these schools accessible. They succeeded. Good on them. Yeah. So she graduated from high school and attended Long Island University, where she minored in education as her goal for a really long time had been to become a teacher. What's she majoring? Uh, I think speech therapy. Um, but kind of there are some slightly conflicting answers on various bits, so... Far less cool than I thought. <laughs> I just I, I was hoping for you know like um, quantum worry. radiology. She gets pretty fucking cool in the next section. Okay, so okay. not saying that speech therapy isn't important. <laughs> One other thing that I want to say before I move on from her childhood to her activism is the reason I know about Judy Human, and I think the reason that a lot of people know about Judy Human is because of a documentary that's on Netflix called Crip Camp, which is about a, a camp for disabled children and young adults and some adults in, I think, upstate New York um, throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, called Camp Jeanette. 
Um, and there's a documentary on Netflix. It was nominated for an Oscar. It is incredible. It is so well made. It is so good. Um, and this is how I learned about her. And if you haven't seen it, the next thing on your watch list should be that documentary. Is she actively involved in making it, or is it like she was? Her she was a camper. Yeah. Okay. But like, yeah. so, so it, it, it like she, it goes into her life a bit rather than. Yes, her being she's one of the like commentators. She talks about it, and then it goes into some of what she does later because a lot of the people who were at that camp with her also participated in the actions that she took later on. So kind of the second, the last sort of 30 minutes of the of the film are dedicated to her later activism and the activism of the others. Um, but absolutely watch Crip Camp. Um, it's incredible. So, as I said, she wanted to be a teacher. And she was able to, even though she'd only minored in education, a new law had been brought in that even if your degree wasn't specifically in education, you could become a teacher. In order to do that, you had to pass three exams, which was... Um, an oral exam, a written exam, and a medical exam. Okay. All of these exams were held in completely inaccessible buildings, necessitating her to ask friends to carry her in her manual wheelchair up the steps so she could take it and back down the steps so she could leave. When you say a medical exam, do you mean like a medical examination rather than like a medical exam? Is it... Um, I'm at, I'm about to get to that. Okay, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, no, don't worry. Um. I don't know the exact specifics of, like, why that's on the list. I think it's kind of to make sure that they're not, like, you know, maybe addicts or other things if they're going to be going to schools. Um, but when she went to her medical exam, which was the last one, she had already passed the oral and the written exams. The first question the person interviewing her asked was, how do you go to the bathroom? And that's a question that's still asked to disabled people all the time. There's um, a really awesome guy on TikTok, his name is Spencer to the West, and he doesn't have legs, and he walks on his arms. And he has really great style, he dresses so well. And the question that he gets asked again and again is, how do you go to the bathroom? And at the end of every video he makes, regardless of what it's about, he goes, I go to the bathroom just like everyone else, bye! So yeah, um, the person who conducted it asked uh, how she went to the bathroom. She was 22 years old, she didn't know what to say it was an interview um and so she kind of explained if i need to teach the kids i'm teaching how to go to the bathroom i can do that um but obviously it's not relevant information but she was ultimately failed on this exam and denied her teaching license on the basis of paralysis and this was the first time she decided to take on systems by herself you need a license to cheat to teach I think more teachers would be more competent. But anyway, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> really, the reason I'm telling you this story is to restore your faith in teachers. So, one kind of thing that I wanted to bring up was she was quite afraid, to begin with, to take on this, the institution, the Board of Education, because she was scared that she would win, she would get a job, and she would be a shit teacher. And it would reflect badly on all disabled people. And I think when we're talking about any activist, it's really important to recognise this point because for people from minority groups who are the first to do something, There's who are a, lot a of pioneer, yeah. um, you know, if uh, you know, a straight white man goes and becomes a teacher, they're not going to then use that to be like, well, straight white men can't be teachers, clearly. But if the first disabled woman the first disabled person, person in a wheelchair, goes and becomes a teacher and they fuck up, that fear is automatically yeah. there that they're going to be like, well, disabled people can't do it. And that's the same for... It's a smaller data set for people to draw conclusions from, yeah. basically. And there's... Um, I don't... That's something like maths, but yes. But no, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so there's this added pressure for all people who are minority groups because... To the rest of the world, to non minorities, they're representing the entire oh, group. Luckily, my girl Judy, Jude, um, had a friend who worked at the New York Times, kind of low down on the New York Times, who was also disabled, um, and was able to have a reporter write a piece about what had happened to her. And this op ed was published in the New York Times, and the New York Times also came out in support of her cause. Oh, that's um, good. And she received a call from a lawyer who had seen this and was writing a book about civil rights and wanted to talk to her. 
by the end of the conversation, she had convinced him to represent her in suing the Board of Education of New York City. Um, and it's really fucking cool because the judge on her case was actually the first African-American female federal judge, um, whose name was Constance Baker Motley. Wait, wait, um, when was this? This was in the late 60s. Right, do you know what amazes me? Mm-hmm. It's that... So, first... What was it? Um, first black female... Uh, the first, yeah, black woman to be a federal judge. Her name was Constance. Right, okay, so a black woman as a federal judge, right, in the 60s, and yet even now it's an uphill battle to get, you know, know, uh, black rights or, like, you know, uh, I don't know, women, they're still being put down. Like, the fact that, do you know what I mean? Because, I don't know, it's, sorry, it's, I always think it's sort of, this, we were ignorant for, I say ignorant, people were dicks for so long, basically, and, like, it's sort of now we're starting to move the wheels. But the wheels have been moving for a long time. The fact that they haven't gathered any, like, as an, as much momentum as they should have done. Sorry, that just always boggles me. Yeah, that... I have a really cool quote from Judy about exactly that thing, if you want to hear it. Yeah. My girl Jude said, Change never happens at the pace we think it should. It happens over years of people joining together strategizing, sharing, and pulling all the levers they possibly can. Gradually, excruciatingly slowly, things start to happen, and then suddenly, seeing out of the blue, something will tip. I was going to save that for at the end, but it felt yeah. relevant in that moment. Yeah, no, well, it, it is true. It's like, you sort of think that it's like people aren't aware of it, and then when the general population are... In my head, at least, I always think people will be like, oh, that's just fucking obvious. Mm. And they'll be like, oh, then, you know, great, great steps will happen. But it's... <sighs> Not that. No. And it's, I think I always just assume that people go, oh, that's fucking obvious. But the people who are in power are the ones least likely to subscribe to that because they think they'll lose their power. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the judge's name um, was Constance Baker Motley. Huge shout um, out to Constance Motley. I'm actually going to cover her in the future because I, I have never heard of her, but I... Judge Constance Motley. Yeah, Sorry, but I, I heard about her through through this research and she's incredible. She fits the description. I'm absolutely going to do her in the future. Well, um, I've got another next week yet, so... <laughs> so, yeah, she... Um, uh, Judy puts it um, about Constance Baker Motley. She knew discrimination when she saw it. So uh, she sided with Judy and she was allowed to retake the medical exam. And this time passed. And she ended up with a teaching job at the same school she went to second grade in the following autumn um, and became a teacher. And that was her first foray. So second grade, that's eight years that's so that was when the first school she went to yeah yeah that's year three um, well, so what i tend to do i tend to go i know 10th grade is about 16 and then i just work from there fair like. <laughs> um so yeah so that was kind of my first foray into um disability activism but it really kicks off from there so um, in 1970 with friends she um co-founded the activist group disabled in action um, which was quite heavily inspired by the actions that were being taken by the uh, civil rights movement for African-American rights um, and by the women's rights movement and the direct action that they were taking. To so she's 23? Yes, she's she's young. Well, yeah, 23. Yeah. Quick maths. That's um, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um... And one little fun fact that doesn't kind of like specifically fit into the story. Um, but I just want to share it. That was my favourite kind. Yeah, because she shares it in her TED talk and I think it's really cool. So she... They took a lot of direct action. It was essentially this like out of the bedroom into the streets. We're not hidden anymore. We're going to take direct action kind of sudden thing. And one of the things she talked about is how... Buses weren't accessible. You couldn't get a wheelchair on a bus. And she talks about how it takes 50 people to stop the traffic on Fifth Avenue, which is something she did, and I'll tell you about later. But it only takes one person to stop a bus. Because if you wheel your wheelchair up to that bus and you lodge your wheels under the steps of that bus, that bus can't go anywhere. Buses still aren't wheelchair accessible. They actually are. Are they? Yes. The bus has to stop and pull out a ramp, but wheelchairs can get on buses. 
technically not every bus surely do you remember those big coaches we used to get like those the yeah. coach. no they actually do have a lift that you can get a wheelchair into them really buses are wheelchair accessible yes um particularly public transport buses but i'm pretty sure all buses that were at least manufactured recently are wheelchair accessible bizarre yeah um so yeah um she the particular like item of interest at this time in terms of that activism was something called the Rehabilitation Act, which was making its way through the House and the Senate in the United States. The thing that mattered the most to them was something called uh, Section 504, which would make it illegal for any federally funded institution to discriminate against people based on disabilities and therefore would give disabled people a course of action to complain and to take action if this happened. So this is Section 504 of a larger... Of a much larger bill right, called the Rehabilitation Act. addressing... Stuff. Okay, okay. But my, po- um, my point is it, it wasn't a standalone... Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, so this particular section was the one that would be really important because schools, libraries, hospitals, police stations, all, all of them federally funded. had to accommodate... Uh, disabled people um but this this bill was vetoed by richard nixon in 1972 Fuck you, nixon. Nixon. he did a lot of other really shitty things but like boo for this <laughs> um so judy <laughs> and some other activists decided to disrupt traffic outside his campaign offices um which was on fifth avenue in new york and she said that the police were quietly supportive of their actions Partly because many of them had friends who were veterans or had been involved in police shootings and ended up with disabilities because of them. I think this really highlights the fact that in reality, everybody's life is affected by disability. Everybody knows somebody who is disabled in some way and anybody can become disabled. Um, And therefore, disability rights, disabled rights are all of our rights, are necessary to someone we all love or are important to all of us and should be something we're all fighting for. Yeah. Um, so... But I just... On that point, even if they didn't address to all of us, it should still be something we're all fighting for. I just... Now I only care about things that personal. Well, it was just... The only thing is, I think, if, with that line, which is quite correct, you know, it could happen to anyone sort of thing. I don't know. I feel like anyone who is going to support it anyway would support it on the basis that it's happening to other people. Yeah, for sure. I feel like, yeah. yeah, like... Absolutely. People should be supporting it no matter what. Yeah, no, you're so right. Um, so, eventually it was passed, um, signed in 1973, but Section 504 was not enforced, and so therefore very little changed in the lives of disabled Americans. So when Jimmy Carter, beautiful little hippie, didn't do a lot, but he was vibing, mate, um... He was elected in 1976, and part of his campaign was a promise that he would change the fact that Section 504 wasn't being enforced. But a few months later, his Secretary of Health announced that he needed more time to review this section. Mm. So I back that up and say that again, that that completely threw me off. Sure thing. So, Section 504, we know it, we love it. Yes. And... Part of Jimmy Carter's campaign, something he said on his campaign, was he would ensure that that was being enforced. But a couple of months after he was elected, his Secretary of Health, um, who's the the like like our Minister for Education, no, 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 I know. Um, can I just say, equating stuff to British political terms does not help me at all. <laughs> if anything, that pushes me further from understanding it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so his his Secretary of Health um, and some other stuff, I think health, welfare and something, um, decided he needed more time to review this action before he could enforce it. Um, and this pissed the people off. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, Judy and her friends had founded something called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities. Um, the ACT... I was just trying to spell it in my head. The ACCD. Um which was founded in a year. And <laughs> they decided that the 5th of April, 1977, was the deadline for him to make his decision to review it and pass it 
Or what? Or they would be taking direct action. Which is? They would be holding protests in cities across America. Sorry, it's all got very dramatic really quickly. (laughs) It's like, we set a deadline. I just, yeah. And this day came and nothing happened. So the protests began. Um, There were sit-ins across cities across America. I think about 10 cities, 10 major cities. Um, And Judy was one of the 150 people who began a sit-in at the Health, Education and Welfare Building in San Francisco where there were no showers and no means of communication as the phone lines had been cut. There were no um, showers? No showers. It's a government building. There's no showers. It's an occupation, essentially. You know what a sit-in is, right? Yeah. I don't understand how no showers are relevant. As in, they're sitting in for, you'll find out how many days, but over a while. There aren't any showers. Oh, like, oh, they can't shower, I see. The people need showers, yeah. Oh, I, I yeah. get that. That didn't even occur to me. I was like... <laughs> You're like, showers. I thought they were sitting yeah. in because there were no showers. And I was trying to connect the no. link to that and disabled rights. No, that's more about a comfort thing when they were actually doing the protest. The sit-in was set, had nothing to do with the showers. 50 days. 45. No. We'll get there. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, so, uh, messages were relayed to people outside the building using sign language, um, Judy remembers a fridge being fashioned from an air conditioning unit and duct tape, hoses were attached to sinks in the bathroom so that people could wash their hair, food was donated by restaurants and groups sympathetic to the cause, members of the Black Panther Party, which is Black I know of them, yeah, which is a Black Power organisation, um, was, uh, delivering hot meals every night. So the protests across the country began to kind of end for various reasons. Um, The longest sit-in of these was in Los Angeles, which lasted four days. But after these other ones ended, those in San Francisco kept going, which is where Judy was. It wasn't until 11 days into the protest, 11 days of occupying this building, that a representative, um, the Secretary of Health, his name was Califino, Califano, Califano, um, came to speak to the protesters. When the action hit 14 days, Judy and some other protesters travelled to Washington, D.C. to apply even more pressure. They held a candlelight vigil and they started ramming their wheelchairs into the doors of his office when they were denied access. So, yes, that many days without a shower, sure. But... These are, first of all, I think it's worth bearing in mind that, like, imagine just, like, a government building. Imagine the post office. And then you just go to the post office and you just live there with what's in the post office for so many days, for weeks. Coming days. And then you imagine that you're also a person, perhaps with a physical disability, who at home has particular accommodations that make their life more comfortable or make their life easier. And in particular, by the definition of what they're doing, they're protesting at a place that makes their life actively difficult. Yes. Um, so it ultimately was 24 days that this sit-in lasted. So almost a month. Um, and it was announced that they had achieved victory. The law had been signed. And this remains the longest sit-in in the history of the United States. 24 days. Yeah. That is, yeah, that's a long yeah. time. Um, so it was actually this act that paved the way for the Americans with Disabilities Act, which essentially transferred some of these rights to private businesses. Private businesses also have to make themselves accessible. Um, and that was signed in 1990. Um, and it was five years later in 1995 that the equivalent law was signed in the UK. 1995. I'm sure we did that in business studies, but I get the point that you're saying is that it's not that long ago. That's really not that long ago. So, Judy Human, my girl. The, uh, the reason I wanted to, that's kind of the story that I'm going to delve the most deeply into because it was her first really like being, let's do it. And also, I think it's just a really incredible story. I'm going to give you kind of the. Sorry, I just thought of another name for her, her autobiography. Do it. Okay, Humankind. Obviously, because it's a book and books aren't that wide. It says human and then underneath it, hyphen kind, like it's being cut off line. 
to like kind human, humankind all together. It just works on so many levels. That's great. That's really good. Um, Sorry. So, Judy Human's still alive. She's 72 years old. Um, she's married uh, to a man named Jorge. She's not 72. She's 72. No, she's not. She's 74. Okay, the article I read said she was 72, and I just kind of took that as fact and didn't check the date the article was written. She's 74. And she's married to a man named Jorge. They've been together for over 20 years. Um, that's the reason. Oh, so they got married quite old then. Yeah, kind of. So the reason I brought that up is because I think a lot of people think that disabled people are unworthy of love. Or can't be in, not unworthy of love, but can't be in satisfying physical and emotional relationships. Particularly people with um, quite noticeable physical disabilities. Uh, what's Jorge's surname? I'm not sure. It's not relevant at all. I, just... <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but yeah, and so the reason I bring that up is because I think it's important to remember that people with all kinds of disabilities can be in satisfying emotional and sexual physical relationships um even if it looks a little bit different it's still possible and a thing and you know disabled people are worthy of love so as is everyone of course except all we need is love (laughs) (laughs) you're holding a hockey stick when you did that like it was a kazoo so, so anyway, my girl, Judy, um, co-founded the World Institute on Disability with Ed Roberts and Joan Leon in 1983. We are. Sorry. <laughs> and served as co-director until 1993. She founded it in 1983 and was co-director okay, right. until 1993. <laughs> I know words. Um, and the mission statement of uh, this organisation is to continually advance the rights and opportunities of over one billion people with disabilities. She went on to serve in the Clinton administration, um, Bill Clinton, Mm. um, (laughs) who, from 1993 to 2001, um, as an assistant secretary in the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitation Services in the Department of Education and was appointed as a special advisor on international disability rights by Barack Obama. Oh, I love Barack Obama. Yes. I, did, I know you've got complicated <laughs> feelings, but, you know, all I want to do is hug that man. Uh, I'd rather hug Michelle. She has great arms. So from 2002 to 2006, Human served as the World Bank Group's first advisor on disability and development. In 2010... She became the Special Advisor on International Disability Rights for the United States State Department, appointed by President Barack Obama. Human was the first to hold this role and served from 2010 to 2017. So wait, you're saying Obama created this role? Yes. God, he's an awful, awful man. That's not what I said. I know, I sorry, said sorry. That. I know, I know. Um, yeah. So on January 20th, 2017, Human left her post at the State Department with the new change of administration. Fuck you, Trump. Boo, I thought um, it was 2016. He was elected in November of 2016. He was inaugurated, officially became president in late January of 2017. Uh, was Biden any... Oh, yeah, that was this year. I that was recent. Time, uh, that was time. it. That was that. Um, God, how annoying is it that it's four-year terms and it's off by a year? What? Well, I mean, the election is every... Like, is not off by a year. Yeah, it's 2016, okay. 2017. No, well, yeah, but okay. So, so anyway, yeah. human. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Get on with it. Get on with it. You keep stopping. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, she left her post. And this role was actually disestablished um, oh. by the United States Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, in 2017. Because that administration are twats. I mean, his name's Rex. Um, I'm hardly backing him. Which means that um, the most senior official um, currently working in the United States government on disability rights is a Paralympian called Anne Cody. Um, who, yeah. So, one of the main reasons that I wanted to talk about Judy today, during Disability Pride Month, 
was because one of the main things that she had said for many years recently was that the fight is not over. Um, disability rights, I think a lot of people who aren't disabled are like, well, there's ramps in places. Disability rights are great. It's all good. But that's not true. And there are steps that need to be taken and there are battles that we still need to fight for disability rights. There's no marriage equality without disabled marriage equality. There's no, you know, travel and stuff. Many disabled people can't travel on airplanes because their wheelchairs exceed the weight limit or transferring them from a wheelchair to a plane seat would be too difficult and disabled passengers, wheelchair user passengers are still not allowed to travel on planes in their wheelchairs. That's insane. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. And I mean, we live in the UK, so I'm going to, when we put the um, sources in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to a really great report about what can be done in the UK and what steps need to be taken in order to make the UK more accessible to people with disabilities. Have you got a top tip from it, by any chance? I've got a top tip. Because they often, they're often like, I don't know, I find these, the 10 things you can do, and... (laughs) Sorry, I was just doing a poll. There's so many things. So it's like, sign a petition. Petitions don't work. They may have worked three times in history to make people think that they work, but petitions do fuck all. People don't have any power. I'm sorry. It's a great point. Um, Okay, so my one... I'll give you a couple of top tips. Again, just a reminder, I'm not an expert. I'm not physically disabled. I've just put some time into researching this stuff because I worked in the care sector. We are neither of us experts on anything we talk about, really. I think you guys know that, but like... Speak for yourself. Wow, okay. But, we, we, you know, we do research these things and I think very often most of what I'm saying is stuff I didn't know beforehand and most of what you're saying is stuff I'd never even heard of beforehand. Uh, so and we're doing this to we're learn. We're getting the information out there. Um, yeah, to learn and to educate. So in terms of moving forward for disability rights, my first thing would be watch Crip Camp. It's, like, really good. <laughs> Um, I'm not being, I'm not being paid by Crip Cam. <laughs> no one pays us. Why we do this, I don't know. Because <laughs> we're best friends. It's bad, a bad necessity. So, but actually, in all seriousness, my main thing, my main piece of advice, my main next step, my main action statement would be unlearn the idea that disability is a negative thing. Unlearn the idea that disabled is a bad word. I'm sorry, no, I think you're coming from a really good place here, but unlearn is terrible advice. (laughs) Unlearn it! Forget it! Is it gone? Do it! I just... (laughs) Fine! The least actionable advice in the world. Also, stop using the phrase wheelchair-bound. It's gross. You're not bound to a wheelchair. A wheelchair is something that gives you freedom. Like a bike. Like a bike. Ugh. Or legs. I, I, that's, I really miss cycling. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I'd miss cycling more than I'd miss walking or running. Well, I mean, there are people who... There's, like, cycling in the Paralympics. So I've been Orla. And I've been Sid. And this has been The Fate Escape, where today we've been talking about disability rights activists and overall legend, uh, Julie Human. You can follow her on Instagram um, or listen to her personal podcast. It's probably better than ours, um, which is called, I think, The Human Perspective. And while you're on Instagram and following podcasts, you can follow us at the Fate Escape Pod and email us at the Fate Escape Podcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. If you've got any suggestions of people who have, you know, created something from uh, less than advantage advantageous less than advantageous positions we would love to hear them uh, so that we can keep doing this because we enjoy it do you want to say just so it's on there for we recognize that women have been oppressed horrifically throughout history um and so when we choose women to do this about we've sort of i don't know it, it was enough for a woman to, to be notable at all in history because to do that would is, is an incredible feat and so when you add that, oh, come up from nothing, 
that in itself counts as coming up from nothing. Yeah, we had a really interesting conversation um, about how, when Googling this stuff, it's very difficult to find women, and it's particularly very difficult to find people of colour, and women of colour especially. And um, we decided essentially that this idea of the fate escape, fate in this context can mean systemic oppression, and nobody can escape systemic oppression, but much like today, people who fight against it are exactly the kind of people who we want to recognise on this podcast alongside, you know, people who did weird, hilarious kind of mental stuff like Rasputin, you know, but yeah, um, the fate escape is not just you were born poor, you became rich, because we don't believe that that's, you know, the only thing that's impressive. Bye. Bye.